Right, so we'll go around each introduce ourselves and our party and um, any opening statements you'd like to make. Um, so, Sam, you're first on my like on my screen. So would you like to start? Yeah, sure. I'm Sam. I'm here on behalf of the Labour Club here on campus, which I'm the treasurer for. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to do like a proper opening statement like on politics, but I'll leave it till the questions. But yeah, sounds good. Um, Josh. Yeah, hello, I'm Josh. Uh, I've been sent here by Lancaster University Conservative Society and I'm a third year PPE student in, in County College. Thanks, Josh. Um, Jack. Hi, everyone. I'm Jack. I'm one of the city councillors that represents the um, university board on Lancaster City Council. Um, I used to be a member of the Labour Party, but since November, I've been sitting as an independent as part of the eco-socialist independent group. Thanks, Jack. Uh, Fraser. Uh, hi, uh, I'm Fraser. I am here representing the uh, Lancaster Lib Dem Society. Uh, I'm a second year history student and I'm the president of the society. Brilliant. And finally, Catherine. Hi everybody, uh, I'm Catherine. I'm representing the um, the Lancaster University Young Greens on campus um, and I guess the best title for me would be kind of acting president since we are not yet an official society but um, I'm looking forward to answering your questions. I love it, thank you. Um, so kicking it off with something um, that's been in the news a little bit recently, um, who should be eligible for the vaccine? So should foreigners and those not registered with GPs still be able to get vaccinated on the NHS? Um, we'll stick to the order I introduced you with. So Sam, if you'd like to start. Yeah, sure. Um, I definitely think they should. I think it's um, it's on every level the best thing to do in terms of it being the best morally to make sure that, you know, everyone in this country is uh, kept safe. And then also just uh, logically as well in terms of how the virus spreads. Um, it's obviously, you know, not discriminating based on nationality. And so in order to protect everyone um, really from the virus, it, yeah, it should be that the rollout of the vaccine is as quick and universal as possible, I'd say. Um, Josh? Yes, yeah, so I, I understand there's been some difficulties in certain hospitals about getting people who aren't participants, who aren't on the NHS, don't have an NHS number on the vaccine. But as I understand, the government has rightly made the decision and given the advice that everyone in the country should be vaccinated who is in the eligible groups, whether uh, regardless of their immigration status. And understand this is a technical issue happening in, in certain hospitals that are trying to get around. But yes, everyone needs to be vaccinated um, because that's the best way to stop the pandemic. And I very much agree, and I think we should support the JCVI priorities list, which is based purely on the science of protecting lives. Mostly, I disagree with a statement made by the deputy leader of the Labour Party, I think, today, where she disagreed with the scientific advice of the JCVI, suggesting that teachers should be given it ahead of certain age priorities, such as the over sixes or the seventies. While I sympathise with prioritising key workers, we've got to follow the science, and the science says the elderly are the most vulnerable; and they need to get it first. And again, and a wider point. Any issue about prioritisation is lessened if we get everyone the vaccine as quickly as possible. And that's the right thing the government is doing, throwing as much money and as much resources at the vaccine right as it can to make sure that everyone gets the vaccine as soon as possible. Thank you. And Jack? 
Well, I think um, certainly we should uh, yeah, follow the priority list that's been set out by the medical experts. Um, and yeah, it's a public health issue um, and it doesn't matter what, what nationality you are whenever it comes to public health. So um, certainly everyone in, in the UK should hopefully um, get access to the vaccine. Um, globally as well, um, I would like to see a system where uh, it doesn't matter what country you're in, um, everyone's able to get the vaccine. But unfortunately, um, I suppose due to the fact that, you know, these these are vaccines being provided by uh, private companies who are ultimately driven by a profit motive. Um, we, we do see that countries in the global south are going to be among the last countries to get the vaccine. Um, and that's certainly something that's regrettable. And I'd like to see the UK as um, a nation with uh, a, a lot more wealth um, compared to other um, places doing its bit to ensure that globally um, the vaccine rollout is as equitable as possible. We also need to make sure that the vaccine rollout is equitable within the UK. Um, we got some pretty worrying news yesterday that um, the vaccines next month due to be um, coming to the northwest 30 that's there's going to be a 30 percent cut um in in the vaccine numbers as they're redistributed towards um london and the south of england um and um i i'm gonna look at the scientific reasons or justification the government's giving for that but it's certainly pretty worrying um and that's something that um i know uh local politicians um from all parties in um, the Northwest have raised concerns about in the past couple of days. Um, so yeah, that's another thing that I'd want to uh, raise as a potential problem into, into the coming months. Thank you, Fraser. Uh, so just quickly addressing the point that Jack just made about um, the shifts in vaccinations to certain parts of the country. Um, if you look at that headline at face value, it is worrying, but if you dive behind it, you actually find that since vaccination has started, the Northwest and the Northeast have both been vaccinating, especially elderly people, at around six to eight percent above national average for England. So that redistribution isn't so much taking it away from taking it away as much as it is rebalancing uh, to make sure that everyone is being vaccinated towards a, an, an average level. Um, you can say it like, oh, we're going to take away vaccines from certain regional areas, but you need to look at the actual stats of where the inequality is in terms of who is being vaccinated. I know that the, the buzzword is, oh, it's being sent to London. But actually, if you look at places like London, the southeast, which has a lot of vulnerable communities that aren't being vaccinated, um, it's not as fair to say, uh, especially considering that I think around 60, 68, 64, 65 percent of people of elderly people in the northwest and northeast have been vaccinated compared to an average in England for about 56 percent, which is as low as 50 in some parts of southern England. Uh, on the other stuff, I would I would definitely genuinely generally agree with what's been said by people. I think whatever way you cut it, um, be it through moral obligation or be it through practicalities, everyone in the UK needs to be vaccinated uh, from a yeah from a position of of national safety and from a position of making sure that people aren't left out by this. Thanks, Fraser. Um, Catherine. Just to uh, reiterate what the others have said, really, um, while we have seen that this, this virus, unfortunately, does um, discriminate in who it impacts when it comes to treatment, you know, we can't pick and choose who we who we would like to vaccinate and who we wouldn't, um, you know, so not just from a, a moral standpoint, but from a health perspective, it's all well and good having 
99% of people vaccinated, but it only takes 1%, even less, for um, a pandemic like this to continue. So as long as we have people that aren't protected, um, it'll remain a problem. And for that reason, I don't really think there is an, an argument to say that we shouldn't um, vaccinate everybody. Yes, some do take priority, like healthcare workers and the elderly, um, but at the end of the day, it's a right that everybody should uh, should be entitled to. Thank you. Um, would any of the panelists like to make a closing remark? Can I can I jump in there a minute? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so a lot of people made a very good point. I just want to pick up something that Jack said. Jack did raise a very good point about globally distributing vaccines, and that's why I'm uh, quite proud that Britain is the largest donator to the Gavi organisation, £1.6 billion into purchasing vaccines for the developing parts of the world, as committed to giving its surplus vaccines to the developing parts of the world. Another point that Jack raised, I kind of want to pick up on, is kind of kind of an animosity towards private firms and, uh, and how they've developed these vaccines and how he thinks that. I think he says that's a bad thing. And I'll disagree. First, I'd like to face the point that the AstraZeneca vaccine is being sold at cost. So there's no private profit being made there. The contrary, we've got the two most widespread vaccines in the moment, the AstraZeneca Oxford one and the Pfizer one. The Pfizer was the first. The Pfizer was made purely by private funding. Private capital seeking profit got us the vaccine in the fastest time possible. That is capitalism at work, getting us vaccines rapidly. And I, I don't think the state organization would have been as agile. Um, Pfizer, the CEO of Pfizer specifically pointed out that he was able to throw money at development so quickly, which gave him the edge, because he didn't have bureaucracy, regulation, politicians to go through. His shareholders all agreed it was worthwhile, so they put the money in. So I think while we do need to make sure there is an equitable share of vaccines, I do not think that the, the fact that they come from private companies is a problem. I believe that the innovation and productivity of these private firms has given us these vaccines, which is a way out of this pandemic. If I could just quickly respond to that. Um, I, I think that um, the way in which the, the vaccines have, have been developed, um, I, I think public money has been an important factor in that it, because it's states are, the, are, are, the, are pretty much the only people buying um, these vaccines. Um, but in, in terms of the um, way in which private companies have, have responded to it, for example, the, the Oxford vaccine, um, Oxford University originally had a plan of um, basically making the vaccine open source so that it could be produced by anyone. But um, instead, um, it was actually the Bill Gates Foundation stepped in to um, convince Oxford University um, to sell exclusive rights to AstraZeneca. Um, and then we see AstraZeneca not being able to um, actually um, meet their original um, targets for production. Um, had it been open sourced, had um, any company been able to produce the vaccine, I think we would almost definitely have seen more vaccines being produced. Um, I think uh, throughout the pandemic, um, in terms of the way in which the government has outsourced so much of its um, response and privatised aspects of the healthcare service, and of course the vaccine system as well, um, we have seen that privatisation and, and uh, capitalism basically um, is incompatible with putting public health first, um, and I think that's um, been pretty obvious. I don't know if you want us going back and forth, but I'd like to respond to Jack if that's all right. One more response. Yeah, so firstly, Pfizer used zero public money. Public money has been spent to buy those vaccines, but it wasn't spent in the development. It was purely private capital that was raised in doing so. But AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca signed a contract with Oxford University to sell the vaccine at cost. At cost. So there is a contract with Oxford there to make sure that AstraZeneca 
I would illegally allow to sell that vaccine at the cost they make it for. And I think the benefits of AstraZeneca is they have multiple supply chains. They've licensed out, again, at cost to um, different countries all over the world. There's not just a supply chain in Britain. There's one in Europe, there's one in India, there's one in Brazil, there's one in America. Uh, I think there's one in South Africa too. Now about these flaws in, in you know, not meeting targets in, in Europe, I think that's kind of misleading. We've, we've had to the a supply chain for billions of vaccines in the space of a few months, and it's never, ever been done before. And the reason why, I think it's quite clear after reading an interview with uh, the CEO of AstraZeneca in the La Republica the other day, um, the supply chain in Europe was set up three months after the supply chain in Britain was started being set up. And lo and behold, they're about two months behind where the British process is. So I don't think that... Uh, Somehow there's some nationalized way of doing this that's any better. I don't think there's any. I think the, the best use of public funding, and I think the only way that public funding should be used other than buying the vaccines, is what the British government did with the Jenner Institute. In previous years, they funded something called a Disease X program, which is to generate, develop a potential vaccine that is ready and can be adaptable for any disease that comes. And that's what the Oxford vaccine is, because they had the funding from the British government and, and from the university themselves to develop this vaccine. When the time came, they had a template ready. Of course, I'm not a biology student, I can't tell you the details, but they had prepared. And that was where government funding was best used. It's only about 20 million pounds the government spent, but that's paid off in the long run. And I think that, again, I think we might have a disagreement here, me and Jack's worldviews, but I think this, this uh, productivity and ingenuity from capitalism is what helps us save lives, not what, uh, not what threatens them. All right, thank you. Any other points that aren't that are generally about this question? No, okay, brilliant. I, um, Josh, you actually stole our second question in, in your answer originally. So I was, well, we'll still run through it and ask see if anyone else has points about this. Um, should the current vaccine hierarchy be changed to vaccinate teachers and key workers as a priority? Um, so Sam, as always, would you like to start? Uh, yeah, sure. This is, um, this is a difficult question. I'd say generally I, um, think that ultimately if the science is uh, saying that we should vaccinate the old first and go through the hierarchy in that way then that is what we should um, listen to. Uh, I do think though that um, there needs to be uh, yeah priority if there is the government plan to reopen schools as soon as possible which seems like it could be in March then there does need to be um, far more uh, placement of um safety guidelines than there has been uh previously uh otherwise they will just once again become hubs for uh the virus spreading uh as we've seen in the past so i would say yeah mainly do stick to the um what the science is recommending currently uh but there does need to be an awful lot more done to make sure that uh schools are reopening safely as it, they weren't frankly uh when they did last time thank you um josh Yes, there's some very good points been raised. I agree, schools should be the first priority to reopening. But um, okay, I'm not a scientist. I do PPE, so I have very little academic ability at all. I think, uh, as everyone will know, it's those PPE. But I think after reading what the CMOs have put out, which I recommend everyone does, because they've got very good, um, they're very good with their putting out their advice. Um, they they agree that teachers are, are a key part in society that needs to be protected. But when they look at the figures, um, there is no statistical difference, statistically significant difference in the rate of deaths for teachers as compared to anyone else in their age group. So teachers are at no more risk of death, um, even though they're very important, and even though it, you know, they might come into more contact, they're at no more risk of death than anyone else in their age group. So therefore, we should still continue prioritizing the elderly, that the 70, 80 pluses and then the 70 pluses and the 60 pluses who have a significantly higher chance of death from this. And I think that 
sometimes this kind of arguing for certain people to get the vaccine first is playing politics. We really need to look at the science, because ultimately we need to follow the data to make sure we save as many lives as possible. Because even though it might sound good to give teachers vaccines, each teacher a vaccine now, they're taking one away from a 70-year-old, and that could cost them their life. So again, like I said earlier, the quickest way around this is to keep ramping up vaccine delivery, keep ramping up, ramping up vaccinations, so we can get everyone, teachers included, done as fast as possible. Thank you. Jack? Um, well, as I think everyone said, we, we should be led by the science and, and, and led by what the medical experts are telling us. Um, uh, and certainly, I think key workers should be, um, you know, given given vaccines uh, whenever most of the vulnerable, vulnerable people in, in society or whatever have, have, have got their vaccines. There was research by the National Education Union published last week, which which showed that for the period during which schools were open, um, teachers were on average um, 1.9 times more likely um, to be infected with coronavirus um, and that was two times more likely for people in uh, teachers in special schools um, and that sort of run that evidence runs contrary to the government narrative of, of schools being a really safe place to go to and um, there was of course that uh, chaotic moment earlier in the month whenever um, at the urging of Labour and the Conservative parties the schools opened for one day and then closed the next day. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I certainly think that we should make sure that key workers and teachers especially um, are given access to the vaccine as soon as that's possible. Thanks, uh, Fraser. Yeah, so this is part of the issue that I wanted to raise with some of the stuff Josh said, which most of it I agree with. The only thing is that, uh, like Jack says, judging the effects of COVID on teachers and their ability to work just by deaths is misleading because we are now in the process of vaccinating the group that is responsible for 99% of the deaths, which I think is great. So we should really consider the two main points of what vaccination needs to accomplish. The first point, like Josh has been saying, is to reduce the risk to those who are responsible for 99% of the deaths. The second point is to reduce the vectors for disease for the rest of society so we can reopen things as quickly as possible. And if you're a teacher and you get COVID, there's a very low chance you'll die. But the amount of disruption, knock on disruption that can cause, uh, I think means it is, it is a significant risk. The point I'd raise is that it's partly about vaccinating teachers, but also vaccinating kids who, all right, most studies have said that um, the majority of, of um COVID in kids is, is symptomless or largely symptomless, they still can pass things on. And if you're looking at vectors for a disease, then school kids returning back to school en masse is going to be a huge risk factor. So it's it's about identifying, like like Josh has been saying, with the science, what the areas where COVID is going to spread, spread the quickest among those who are unlikely to die from it, but those who can still suffer uh, quite a lot of disruption in their lives, especially people like young carers who if they get COVID, they're, you know, that, that's putting them in an extremely difficult situation that hasn't been recognised by the government, that hasn't been recognised uh, generally by the media, uh, and that is leaving them with very few options. Um, so I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's my two cents on it. Thank you. And Catherine? I have to agree with um, points that Fraser made there, because obviously, you know, people are looking at the mortality rates and that is a big focus but before that we just need to focus on limiting the spread um in in the first place and i think a key thing that a lot of policymakers seem to be forgetting in the case of teachers and with students is you know not all students 
come from the same household and similarly not all teachers don't either so they are coming into schools they are you know they may have bubble systems in place but they are interacting you know with a, a number of people um and then going back home and potentially spreading it to people that that are vulnerable um and a challenge for a lot of the parents is that they're having to kind of choose between their child's or at least they were having to choose between their child's safety um, and their education. Um, and as Fraser said, while young people do have far, um, generally their symptoms are far less severe, it has been shown that they are um, greater spreaders of the virus than any other age group at the moment, so that the transmission rate amongst young people is uh more rapid than any other age group um, and obviously if that transmission then goes to more vulnerable people that is where your your problem is so I think it's just important to remember that Covid um, and our response to it it's much more than just the mortality rate we need to look at the wider picture um, and that is stopping the transmission in the first place. Thanks, Catherine. I know you heard. I know you're probably tired of my voice, but it's a quick point about transmission, if I can. Um, you all make very good points about schools being highest for transmission, but again, uh, perhaps I'm a bit of a nerd. But if you read the CMO's guidance, they've talked about it a lot, and the uh, report by the JCBI. So at the moment, we're not aware of how um, effectively the vaccine stops transmission. They know it's very effective at stopping you from getting severe disease and going to hospital and dying, but they don't know how well it stops you from passing it on. So based on that basis, they aren't. They aren't uh, prescribing it to be used to stop transmission. That's why, and that's a uh, that thought has gone into that there. So that's why, while it's a very good idea, um, if the action works in that way, I'm sure they'll change their mind. But at the moment, the, the, the CMOs and the JCVI, on purely scientific grounds, have, have justified that reasoning there that they don't know how well the vaccine stops transmission. Can I just say something quickly on that? Yes, please. Um, so yeah, again, I I agree with a lot of what's been said, but if we're talking about things that we simply don't know about how transmission is going to affect society in the long term, then what about the effects of long COVID? I mean, again, it's not just about the deaths, it's about um, the longer lasting effects of COVID for people over a long period of time that we don't know about. So we could sit here and say we don't know, we'll have to wait, or we can say, well, what if we try and present, prevent transmission earlier on because, uh, you know, further down the line, it might come to pass that their rehabilitating effects for long COVID for a larger amount of people in the population in the long term than if we'd started vaccinating earlier to reduce these transmissions. That's all I wanted to say on that. Thanks. Any other points? OK, um, then our media officer has a quick thing to say just about asking questions. Uh, Sonia, if you'd like to. Uh, yeah, so uh, if you have Twitter, um, we you can use a hashtag and we are now debating which one. Libby, do you want to resolve it? Which hashtag do you think looks better? I cannot see the chat from here. Oh, that's very sad. OK, so please, could you um, use mine, Andrew, I won. Hashtag uh, capital P, lower O, lower L, capital S, lower O, lower C, capital L, capital U, capital Q capital T 21 hashtag polsoc lu qt 21 so it would be specifically for us and none other people would think that we're weird uh just send your questions there any comments etc obviously please be polite this is switch i don't want anyone to be banned thank you 
Yeah, so any comments? Or if you don't have Twitter, feel free to just raise your hand if you have a question. Um, as always, if any of the audience does have questions, raise your hand or tweet and I'll get around and ask some of them when they pop up. Oh, I can see. I'm going to have to scroll and see who's got a hand up. Uh, Dan Jones, would you like to ask your question? Yes, uh, just on the topic of COVID, um, when do the panellists panelists think it's acceptable to return to normal life when we see that the over 70s make up more than 90% of deaths and that at the end of the day, these measures are in place to prevent hospitals being overwhelmed? Once the over 70s have been vaccinated, those priority groups, the risk of hospitals being overwhelmed reduces significantly. And that is the whole point of these measures being in place to keep the deaths down and hospital admissions low, not to stop transmission in the community when younger people aren't at risk of COVID that much to the degree of 0. 0. 0.0046% chance of mortality. Question, yes, the question is to them. When do they think, when do they think the uh, measures should be lifted and normal life should return? That is the question related to the... OK, thank you. Uh, shall I answer first? Yes, please. Um, OK, so I can't give an exact date, um, unfortunately, as uh, as much as I would like to. But I think um, I think you're right in saying that hopefully with vaccinations being rolled out now, there's kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully that we've seen the worst of it gone. But I would say, you know, ultimately, um, the government's always been one step behind in terms of locking down and how long those lockdowns have um, happened for. I remember, you know, with the November lockdown, it was so obvious that it should have happened in um, started when half term started um, so that there wouldn't be as much disruption to schools. Um, so I am just kind of cautious about um, at this point arguments to um, raise lockdown as soon as possible when we've seen the disastrous effects of that. Uh, without any planning in the past. So I'd, uh, yeah, I'd say hopefully um, it would be lovely to get out of it as soon as possible. I do think we're probably going to have to be uh, in this period for a number of more weeks and possibly months in order to make sure that people are staying safe uh, when, yeah, we failed so drastically um, in periods when lockdown has gone into tier systems and been lifted. Yes, yeah, so um, uh, yeah, we need to, as vaccines come in, we will be able to reduce our, our restrictions. We've got to be careful, we don't want to do it too early. Um, but as time goes on, um, we're going to reduce death. And I think the good point Dan did raise is hospitalizations. That's the key justification for these measures. And as we vaccinate the 60s and 70s, which make up a lot more of hospitalizations, that will come down significantly. So that's what I think we need to wait for. You know, the faster we get vaccinated, the faster we can get out. But again, it's, it's it's wrong for the for the government to give a, a specific date because I think it, it, it's misleading. What I, what I think the government could be doing better is talking to us about what they want to see before they reduce measures. If they want to say these are the these are what we want to see in hospitalisation, this is when we will consider reducing these measures. Explain their thinking with the public. Treat us like adults. I think that's one of my my critiques of the government uh, with, with uh, over the past couple of months. The government can't, okay, they can't give us a date. They can't uh, you know do something like this with Christmas make a promise they can't keep. But they need to be a bit more open with their thinking so the public know what's going on. Well, I think we've we've seen over the over the past year what the um, effect of 
exiting lockdown too hastily and too quickly is. Um, you know, the UK, let's remember, has one of the worst death rates, if not the worst death rate in the world, 100,000 people dead. Um, certainly had the government locked down earlier and harder and for longer, um, many of those people would not have died. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, whenever it comes to the vaccinations, um, obviously there's a time delay between someone getting the vaccination and then developing immunity. And um, there's obviously the whole question over um, when people um, and if people will get the second dose, which is, of course, you know, necessary for um, developing maximum immunity. Um, so certainly, you know, it, it, it logically follows that that once um, the most vulnerable people have developed immunity thanks to the vaccine that we'll be able to um, uh, ease restrictions. But um, I certainly hope that the government won't do, do so too hastily as it has repeatedly done because that just um, necessitates a further extra unnecessary lockdown later down the line. Um, I think had the government from the outset um, pursued a sort of zero COVID strategy like many other nations of just trying to eliminate the virus and um, which would have been possible had it acted very um, uh, strictly um, right at the start then a lot of deaths a lot of um, uh, uh, suffering and, and of course the um, annoyance of all of these repetitive lockdowns could have been avoided. Uh, yeah I mean it's it, again there, there's no there's no definite date Asking for a definite date is just setting yourself up for disappointment. But you can look at the facts now, like you're saying, hospital cases are stabilising. Cases have gone down by over a half in the past couple of weeks. Um, vaccinations are going well. It's looking good, but we don't want to throw that away, bearing in mind that at a certain point until last summer, we had a similar situation. Hospitalisation hospitalization was stabilising, cases were going down, deaths were going down. Um, but we threw it away by being too hasty about it. Um, so I think... Um, and you remember the, the lockdowns that have been debilitating, but they have achieved a purpose of getting the cases down. Uh, now that we have vaccinations up, we can start um, pushing that through as a more long-term strategy. Um, I think the current point mentioned about um, giving dates, um, the government has now said that um, if cases have dropped to a certain level by February 7th, they will just announce kids going back to school. Um, whether or not that's a good idea, I think remains to be seen. Um, personally, I, I think you know the cases are going down enough where you can start to think about reopening. Um, but you have to be careful. One of the points in the question I wanted to address is the assumption that because the age group that is responsible for the deaths are being immunised means that there is currently no present danger. Like I said before, painting it as a um, healthy versus dead argument is painting it too black and white. Um, we don't know what long COVID is going to do. And for starters, um, if, we have a, if we have a situation where, OK, deaths down, but cases are way up, that's still going to cause a lot of disruption. It's not measuring it by deaths is, I think, the most important metric, but it's not the only metric. And once we've, we've solved that, and we need to keep um, reminding ourselves, it's not all plain sailing just because deaths have gone down, because um, COVID partially it's, it's going to be debilitating for people who have uh, who pull through, but still have uh, immuno, um, uh, compromised immune systems. And if you're real on COVID, that's going to disrupt your li livelihood. So it it's too simplistic just painting it as okay there are no more deaths now let's open everything up we need to be a bit more careful about that yeah i completely agree with all the, all the points made um and i think unfortunately as as we've seen it's just it's futile setting dates um it leads you know it, 
um, leads to disappointment amongst the general public. Um, and I think it also kind of incorrectly um, encourages this idea that, oh, oh, by this this date, you know, everything will be fine. Everything will be be over. Um, and that, that's really not true. That's not how a, a virus works. Um, and we do have to follow the science. And I think once we see, you know, to, I know that's what everybody's saying in the moment, but it, it is true. I think we can only safely um, allow people out and to return to some degree of normality again. Uh, once we see that those death rates are down and that the most vulnerable groups uh, are protected as need be, um, I think, you know, there is maybe a disappointment amongst the general public that the vaccine hasn't been rolled out as quickly as maybe we would have expected and things haven't just switched. Um, but with a thousand GPs and 200, um, almost 250 hospitals uh, working on this vaccine rollout, um, I do have to commend the government, at least in its efforts to try and, and get people safe and healthy as, as quickly as possible. Um, but we also just, I think, part of the messaging has to be that um, this idea that we can return back to normal, uh, you know, well, what would normal be? But also living with a pandemic, it's not a temporary thing it has long-term effects and it's not simply a case of switching things on and off again um these processes have to be gradual and even when we do get to the point where you know there seems to be um a leveling off and a, a decrease in deaths um it cannot just be a free-for-all it has to be a staggered return Thank you. Are there any other points you would like to make about this topic? No? OK, well, we've got another. I'm going to rephrase it slightly differently, but we've got a question from Twitter that's come through. And where has it gone? Here we are. Um, this is perfectly fine if you don't know. This is something that's happened um, just over the last 24 hours. So if you're not familiar with it, that's absolutely fine. But if you are, it'd be interesting to get a couple of different perspectives. Um, so what are the panellists' opinions on the current manipulation of stocks in regards to game stock? Uh, Sam, would you like to? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm unfortunately uh, not a uh, massive expert on hedge funds and such, but... Um, well, neither, yeah. I don't understand it. The execs had to explain it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to basically desperately remember what uh, the ex explanation seems from the big short. But... Um, I think ultimately, yeah, it's it's great to see uh, regular people giving hedge fund managers a run for their money, really. And you see, you know, there's this kind of greediness and cockiness that you see from these firms in trying to, you know, make massive amounts of money by uh, crippling these businesses and putting, you know, thousands of jobs at risk. And uh, yeah, I think it's just good for them to get a bit of the taste of their own medicine, really. And now, of course, you see them on all these kind of... Um, you know, all these news outlets are begging for mercy, basically, because uh, they've taken uh, incredibly wrong decisions, but out of greediness uh, that are now coming back to bite them. So I'd say, yeah, all power to the um, to the people who have bought um, GameStop shares. And I'm hoping that this might be a turning point for a lot of people in investment firms to uh, check uh, some of their greed, which has meant, um, yeah, betting for the um, collapse of companies. 
Thank you. And Josh, would you like to? Yeah, well, in my opinion, this is just yet another uh, you know, brief market phenomenon. We've seen it all before. The only difference is this time it's got better memes to accompany it. Um, so, you know, retail investors making kind of, you know, jumping on bandwagons. But I, I'm going to caution what Sam was saying about kind of these hedge funds being kind of greedy or something. The, he the hedge funds are just doing business. And the majority, predominantly, the hedge funds aren't, hedge funds aren't, ones, aren't kind of on one side of this. Hedge funds are on the uh, buying side too. BlackRock has been investing huge amounts jumping on this wave to buy uh, GameStop shares. So I, it, it's not quite that straightforward. And of course, you've got to remember, these hedge funds aren't just billionaires getting rich. The largest source of investment in these hedge funds are the pensions of ordinary people up and down the country. So yeah, hedge funds, they're not that evil. They're, they're people's pensions normally. But uh, yeah, this is a phenomenon that will come and go. Just this time, we're all talking about it because it was on Reddit and it's got some good memes. Um, I'm not. I'm not that convinced. It's actually just a, a one-off phenomenon. We'll we'll see what happens um, over the next like couple of months and years. But I think now that um, people have realised um, just how easy it actually is to um, throw Wall Street into so much chaos, um, because ultimately it's exposed the reality of what what stock trading is, and it's just like a massive casino based on nothing. Um, and like it is just sort of representative of what so much of the modern economy is, um, sort of the financialization we've seen over the past couple of decades where some of the richest people uh, and highest earners um, in, in the West are just people who sit there moving about imaginary money on spreadsheets, um, contributing absolutely nothing. Um, they're not they're not sort of productive members of society in my view yet they're the ones making the most money and it sort of uh, exposes the 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 lie around um, you know capitalism supposedly being this productive and and sensible and logical way of or, or organizing our society um I also think um the, the way in which Wall Street um, has responded to the games gamestop um, issue over the past day or two has really exposed um sort of another lie about that we have some sort of free market because of course um loads of these online trading platforms like Robinhood and trading one two on two and stuff over the past few days have just like stopped people from from buying any any of these shares um and uh like sort of artificially um inserted themselves in into the uh supposedly free market to try and um, suppress the rise in in the stock value, and we also saw um, online platforms uh, try and censor people from talking about it. The Reddit, um, the subreddit Wall Street Bets was briefly taken offline last night, um, and I, I know that Discord I think also have banned the um, Wall Street Bets community who were sort of coordinating this stuff. So that's that's I think a particularly um, uh, stark example of. Um, you know, if, if you start uh, pissing off these um, billionaires in Wall Street, um, well, they'll just sort of like take away your ability to actually buy the shares and, and engage in this supposedly free market. Um, I I just think uh, it's it's ultimately just quite funny. Um, and we've seen loads of billionaires and, um, you know, all of these hedge fund managers shorting GameStop lose billions of dollars. And that's ultimately quite funny and I think probably a good thing. Yeah, I mean, part of me hopes that there's a longer term sense from this that people are more aware of um, some of the less ethical practices practices that happen on Wall Street. Not that I'm necessarily agreeing with everything that Jack's saying. I think 
I'm more side with Josh on this one. Um, but part of me is more skeptical. I think the, the longest term effect is going to be the memes. I mean, as, again, as much as I'd like um, for there to be something that sort of sticks it to sort of the monopolistic tendencies of some of these companies and the way that they um, sort of uh, exclude uh, people who aren't in the club, I, I think that it's it's gonna it's gonna burst eventually. Um, people saying hold the line uh, on GameStop stocks, it's not going to hold forever. Um, the two people who profited out of it most are the people who already had stocks in it, and they're not part of the joke. So um, the moment they decide they've had enough, uh, I think um, it, it's it's going to it's going to peter out at some point. Unfortunately, as as good as the memes are, um, yeah. As um, as is always the case with the stock market, obviously things change. And um, as Jack said, it'll be interesting to see whether this is a how this pans out long term. Um, and I think you know there are going to be some sectors that do better than than others in this situation, and that and that is great. And while I understand Joshua's point about hedge funds being part of business. Um, I think we do just have to be aware that the stock market, as Fraser said, is is if you're in the club, great. If you're not, you're not. Um, and there is a lot of misconception around who actually benefits from the stock market. You know, we saw with Trump's um, presidency, he was very keen to reiterate, you know, how great the stock market is doing. Um, and the economy for him, you know, it was one of his, his big, it was his campaign, essentially. Um, but that doesn't necessarily translate to on the ground and um, people living day to day. So while I am, you know, not opposed to businesses doing well and businesses growing, um, there needs to be some caution around um how much freedom we allow the stock market and um you know companies like GameStop as to what they can and can't do. Thanks Josh, you'd like to go? Yeah, just just kind of a quick thing. I think there's a difference in how we understand the stock market works. It's not imaginary money, it's the value of companies. If you don't believe companies have a value to them then I, I don't really know what to say about that. And they have purpose, it raises capital of companies. This, this is pretty basic. Companies raise capital to invest, to be able to do really anything uh, through IPOs. Now, again, about um, what Catherine said about being in a club. If you have a pension, if you have a private pension or workplace pension, you're in the club. Right? This isn't all just billionaires. A lot of people make a lot of money off it. But the large amount of people who get hurt if we go on some sort of anti-stock market drive are people who are in pensions, which is your parents, you in a couple of years when you start working, people up and down the street, ordinary people. That's, they're who are the people who are in the club. So... Um, you know, I think again and again. I think this is this isn't anything totally big. It's just got big means behind it. It's, it's on Reddit, so people know about it. This will it's another bubble, uh, create, you know, started by retail investors. Just like yeah, anything going back to the tulips in uh, in the Netherlands, it'll, it'll go in a few weeks. Um, Sam. Yeah, just in terms of um the kind of uh the idea that you know people taking an anti-stock market position is the biggest threat in all of this um you know you admit yourself that you think this is uh just a kind of one-off and not really um gonna be the norm however uh when you do see um that there's genuine danger and collapse it's when uh these 
companies themselves have acted incredibly irresponsibly. You look to the you know 2008 crisis and the amount of hurt that was caused to people um, because of you know their stake in this, despite not making the decisions that were so costly. Um, yeah, I think there's just um, it's always the kind of most off, worst off and most vulnerable um, in society. He always pay for the kind of um, poor decisions of uh, the people at the top of these firms. And I think it, there needs to be a plan for how um, to uh, divest power away from kind of companies which have a record of acting incredibly recklessly um, to the cost of many lives. Thanks, I'm Kathleen. Yeah, just to um, come back on on Joshua's point, I, I, you know, I'm not denying what he's saying about pensions. Um, as, the, as an example, people do have a lot invested in it and people do benefit, um, absolutely. But um, I think maybe there is a tendency for the benefit to be um, exaggerated um, and at the, you know, as, as Sam was just saying, um, just look at 2008, you know, that is your kind of big example and in the past where um, taxpayer money has had to buy out big businesses um, and that is not necessarily because there is anything wrong with business, you know, I agree with Joshua's point, it is important, it's part of an economy and what helps it to run. The problem becomes when that is what what dominates and um you know we need to have find a balance between uh, a market that thrives and grows but also a market that works for the people and does really see the benefit on the ground and not just in the hands of um of the few thanks um fraser would you like to make your point Oh uh, yeah, it's just quickly, I just wanted to talk about a clarification really to what at least I personally meant by part of the club. I wasn't trying to, to denigrate the idea of the stock market as, as a concept. For me, it was more just saying that there's this sort of magic circle that, that has been uncovered by by the GameStop issue as much of a, I think of a fad it is. Um, it, it's not so much about um, being anti-stock market because I love nothing more than for it to offer it like a truly free market. But like Jack mentioned, you're seeing cases uh, where the uh, this new capital in GameStop by you know small time investors is being limited, um, it's being taken down by big tech. And my personal issue um, isn't with the stock market; it's just with the idea that there's some sort of protection being offered. Because if it is a fad, like I believe it is, then then what, what surely what what's the danger in in this this sort of short term rise fall? Uh, and allowing short-term investors to be able to invest freely, which is not taking place right now. That's just my clarification on what I meant by part of the club as a sort of magic circle. Thanks. Uh, Jack? Yeah, just to like um, briefly follow on from Fraser's point there, I think, yeah, there is this nice idea of this um, sort of democratic free market, but in, in reality it doesn't exist and, and sort of the the unfair, unequal um, stock market that we have at the moment—that is—that is the reality. That—that is—that is what—that is what, that is what um, the, the supposedly free market um, ultimately always leads to. Um, and um, whilst there is this sort of illusion that, well, sure, anyone can go and invest money and make money, and um, in reality, it's just those with um, massive amounts of capital 
who are um, usually able to um, take the the risks and, and and make any money off it. Um, it's not um, it, it's it's not ever going to be this sort of um, democratic place where someone could go in with a fiver and and make make millions. Um, it's ultimately just um, uh, a millionaires billionaires club really. Um, and uh, those in power, those with capital, are the people who are um, the only people uh, able to sort of make any kind of money off it. Thanks so much. Um, and moving back to our pre-prepared questions, um, should the government provide free school meals for pupils in the UK while schools remain closed? And actually, let's change up the um, order of answers for a bit, if everyone's OK with that. Um, Catherine, are you right if we start with you this time? Uh, yeah, that's great. Um, yes, I think we should. Um, just because schools close, unfortunately, that doesn't magically mean that um, the financial situation of, of families does. And there are still many kids struggling, uh, well, families struggling to make ends meet, to feed themselves, to feed the kids. Um, and, you know, I think especially if there are inconsistencies in the furlough scheme um, and you've got parents out of work um, there is a real argument for potentially if need be for the free school meals to be expanded um, or at least take this as an opportunity to really look at um, how how bad is the food poverty situation I think you know we, we like to think that the poverty is not, maybe no longer a problem or not as big a problem um, in a developed country like the UK. And, and unfortunately, that's really not the case, um, especially for children. So I think, you know, um, COVID, it, it's given us an opportunity to look in the mirror. Um, and in terms of the provisions that we have for the most vulnerable, um, it's really presented an opportunity to do that. And we should not only look at um, the, fr the free school meals but also uh, wider issues that, that need to be dealt with in terms of poverty and child poverty. Thanks Catherine. Um, Fraser do you want to go next? Yeah well this has just been a, a, a saga the government reaction over free school meals I mean we've seen they you know their reluctance to do it and their consistent u-turns in the face of any public criticism has been a bit of a spectator sport I think absolutely it is something essential to guarantee going through the pandemic and um, as we recover from it. Um, I don't know how much more I have uh, to add on that, really. I, 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 I definitely agree that it should be a priority. I mean, um, uh, a consistent uh, a consistent hot meal, consistent healthy hot meal every day while you're in school, um, which is something that um, for a lot of people in, in you know, situations, especially uh, because of COVID, if they're just unable to, to provide that care, is something that we should absolutely be, be guaranteeing for kids. Thanks, Fraser. Um, Jack, would you like to go? Um, yeah, definitely. I think um, free school meals um, and throughout the holidays, um, they should be um, provided by the government, not just during the pandemic, um, but I think uh, going forward as well. And I think that's ultimately why the government has been so reluctant to um, offer um, this and so many other um, necessary benefits during the pandemic, because then people will realise that, wait, the state can actually afford this quite easily. Why isn't it doing it all the time? Um, 
And uh, I think that that's a realisation that the government is scared people will make, um, which is why it's been so reluctant. So, yeah, we should be um, uh, yeah, giving giving out as much free food to people who need it as possible. Um, there's a growing campaign um, uh, about the, the right to food. Um, and there was a motion passed in Liverpool City Council, um, I think just last week, about that, about trying to get um, a, a legal um, entitlement to food in, sort of like enshrined in law um, so that food isn't sort of uh, treated as a commodity, but um, it is uh, you know, seen as a fundamental right that the state's job is to provide to everyone. And we've obviously seen over the past decade with um, conservative austerity um, driving um, the need for use of food banks um, and uh, one of the biggest food banks in the country in, in Morecambe um, just nearby us um, where the state has fundamentally failed in its responsibility to just ensure that um, people and kids are able to feed themselves and um, so yeah that's definitely something um, that I'm 100% in, in support of. Thanks Jack. Josh would you like to, to go? Yeah, so this is a very good point of the raise, and I agree with giving them, you know, when people are out of school, if they would have otherwise been at school, give them free school meals. And this is an area where I disagree with the government. Um, I think the government's done a poor job, and it's shown how when the government tries to do things, bureaucracy can get in the way. And it's tried to, the food parcels were, were an absolute mess. Um, the thing that I think is quite terrifying is the idea of the government trying to feed your kids. I think it's a terrible idea. What the government should do, that they're true conservative value, give the parents a 20 pounds or however much value they're going to spending on free school meals, let the parents feed their kids with it. They know what's best, a free market solution, because they'll, they'll know what's best for their situation. So yeah, the government should, rather than rather than try and do any of this bureaucracy, um, add, add the money they would have spent on their free school meals onto uh, universal credit or other welfare schemes, just give the money straight to the parents. And Sam? Uh, I do, yeah, I do think that the um, free school meals should be uh, absolutely extended and I think it um, unfortunately we have a crisis in this country of poverty um, that um, has been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic but uh, absolutely existed before beforehand and we need to really remember that when we're thinking about the solutions to it because although you know extending free schools meals would do a lot of good um, it's ultimately uh, kind of a stopgap rather than a proper solution to really deal with child poverty in this country and uh yeah as jack was saying this is um this is due to the kind of the ideological uh program of the tory party which has led to well 130,000 deaths with covid uh, uh sorry not with covid um with austerity um 700,000 more children in poverty than there were in 2010 and uh yeah in the case of morecambe you know there are stories uh, which have been ran uh, where there are cases of rickets, you know, Victorian diseases um, due to children being so malnourished. We, of course, had a UN report come here which said that the state had um, ideologically cut off its safety net um, with a very cruel system, which has led to now 20% um, of the country uh, being in poverty. Uh, so I think, yeah, this is it's a good start, but it's not the end. And ultimately, the government needs to recognise that its decisions so far economically have led to an awful lot of uh, not just death, but you know the kind of huge incalculable impact on people's lives, where um, yeah, it can't be sustained. Thanks, Sam. Um, does anyone have any closing comments on that question? No. Okay, we'll move on to another one from Twitter. Actually, this one is from 
Sim One City. Um, what does the panel think of sanctioning China over the Uyghur genocide and violations of Taiwanese sovereignty? Um, so, Catherine, would you like to start again? Um, this is a, a difficult one, as, as it always is with international politics. Um, you know, I agree with the sanctioning, or at least, you know, in theory, um, I agree with the sanctioning and, and the action does need to be taken to show that uh, discrimination um, and persecution will not be accepted by the international uh, community. Um, you know, I would have to do more research on it, but I think the danger with sanctions is it, it doesn't always have the um, intended impact. And while, you know, bringing kind of an economy to a, a standstill, um, in, in theory, is supposed to kind of encourage policy change um, and negotiation rather than hurting the government, it, it ends up hurting the people. Um, and so I think while in, in theory, yes, I agree with the, the international stance and the fact that action is being taken on what is um, a horrific issue that's only just recently come to light. Um, you know, we can't have what are essentially concentration camps um, existing in, in the 21st century. And um, But I think we also just need to consider whether these sanctions are actually having um, the desired impact or whether there should be uh, another way to encourage policy change. Thanks, Catherine. Um, Fraser? Yeah, I think I'd just like to go go a step further. I mean, what we, we should be incredibly clear, clear about this. What is happening in China is absolutely repugnant. I mean, um, the leaked, uh, there were 400 leaked pages from an internal report from China recently um, that said that basically students returning from Hong Kong or students from, to returning from abroad to um, areas of Western China were being told that their parents, their, their family had been sent to, to schools um, free education and that if they knew what was good for them, that's basically a direct quote that they wouldn't interfere um, because um, there are reports that actually students trying to get their parents and their relatives out of these these camps results in harsher sentences and longer time spent there. Um, another thing on the list of many, many atrocities being committed is that forced sterilization uh, of Uyghur women is, is, is taking place as well, um, among a listing of other human rights abuses. Um, uh, and also the the question of um, violating Taiwanese sovereignty uh, with things like uh, territorial expansion in the South China Sea, the you know the the seven dash line or the, the nine dash line, um, whichever one of those it is. Um, so we need to be very very clear. And the Lib Dems have been, have been leading the way in this for years. I mean, Al Alistair Carmichael, one of our great MPs, has been raising this question to Parliament about uh, oil genocide for years and years and years. And I think the fact that it's only just come to uh, the attention nationally is is pretty poor. We 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 should been doing more on this earlier. Um, I think uh, this is the only time you'll hear me um, complimenting Dominic Raab, but Dominic Raab released a, uh, some, some good statements uh, denouncing the actions. I know that the US under the new um, Biden administration is planning a lot of cutbacks to um, support and denouncements for China. I know that AOC, um, Congresswoman uh, from New York, has been uh, proposing that we don't allow any new Chinese consulates up until we get to open one uh, into, or they get to open one in, in Tibet. Um, so yeah, I, I fully agree that, that sanctions and whatever means necessary to uh, to try and take apart this this concentration camp system that's happening in Western China. 
Thanks, Fraser. Um, Jack? Um, well, yeah, naturally I'm opposed to all genocide and, and some of the reports coming out of China, such as the forced sterilization and, and uh, concentration camps, all of that um, is, is awful. Um, I don't know, however, if, if sanctions are necessarily the best response. Um, I think there's usually sort of a, um, a a push for sanctions in in the West as just sort of like the default response to any state um, who the West disagrees with, um, and I don't think that necessarily has a very good track record of um, stopping human rights abuses um, or um, having the desired effect, um, whatever it is, um, on, on those particular states. Um, I think in general, what I would like to see is sort of a more logically consistent approach from the West, from this country, from America, um, uh, when it comes to human rights, because um, whenever it comes to a country like China, which is obviously sort of a expanding economic power and threatening American um, economic um, hegemony, then there's a a, a focus um, on human rights abuses there. But whenever it comes to uh, concentration camps in America, I haven't heard any major British politicians calling for sanctions against America. Um, so I think, or, or or indeed another country, Saudi Arabia has a whole litany of um, human rights abuses, and yet the um, UK is is very keen to arm Saudi Arabia to um, allow it to continue to the mass murder of Yemeni civilians. Um, so I'd certainly like to see a, a consistent um, approach whenever it comes to um, responding to human rights abuses, um, because I certainly think it's um, uh, counterproductive for um, a country like the UK to be calling out human rights abuses in one country whilst funding them in another. Thanks, Fraser. Um, Joshua? Yeah, so I agree very much with what Fraser said. Um, I think this is perhaps the most defining issue of our times. Um, at least one million people in concentration camps due to their ethnicity, possibly as many as three, forced sterilization, it's genocide, straight and simple as. Um, I think in a, in a, an example of how a broken clock can strike right, right, right twice a day, in the dying days of the Trump admin, Mike Pompeo did the right thing by calling it genocide and by banning cotton imports from the Uyghur, from the Xinjiang province of, of China. Um, again, I think everyone who doesn't know enough about this needs to read up about it. I, I know in uh, Tory society, we had the wonderful events with Rahman Mahmoud, who's a, uh, a Uyghur activist who's been exiled to the UK, and with Nathan Laws, uh, the exiled Hong Kong activist, which is really beneficial to hear firsthand from them. I think we need to go uh, with sanctions, um, but I think I don't really get what Jack's saying. If he's saying you need to go beyond sanctions, I think I definitely agree with him. But I think sanctions are a good start. And I think unlike the Cold War, where we live in a world where we are deeply interconnected on economic levels with, with China, that has its blessings and its curses. One of them is that we can target, have Magnitsky sanctions targeting specific people who we know are involved because they have assets and wealth often in Western uh, economies. And we can target the people personally. We can sanction and block the import of of slave labor made cotton from the Xinjiang province. And uh, we can do many more things. But what we need to do, it needs to be done together as an alliance, which is where Joe Biden is going to be a massive benefit of what Donald Trump was. Um, we need to get together democracies in the world to counter together. That's why I'm glad that Boris Johnson is inviting Australia, uh, South Korea, and India to the G7 meetings this year in Britain, forming what, what's often referred to as a D10 of the world's leading democracies, where we can counter China together. Um, on things at the South China Sea, I'm glad to see that Britain is sending our new carrier strike group down there to, to stand up for freedom navigation as set out under the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, one of the most fundamental pieces of international law. 
I think that's brilliant. And I think we need to do more to, to support Taiwan. I think that uh, uh, Joe Biden inviting essentially the de facto ambassador from Taiwan to his inauguration was a good sign. Um, and I think we need to be more welcoming to them because they are a functioning democracy with liberal rights, you know, thing that we'd, we'd love. And they are a straight uh, counterexample to the line toted by the Communist Party. The line toted is that democracy doesn't work in China. Democracy is messy. It doesn't work here. But then in the Republic of China, a few miles over the sea, where they have Chinese culture, democracy is thriving. So, yeah, we need to go really tough on these issues. And I think uh, I'm, I'm cautioned because I, I kind of see similarities. And I'm not saying that we're in the same situation as we were then, but I do see similarities to one of the most shameful episodes of British history, which was the appeasement of the 1930s. And I think we need to make, learn the lesson then, stand up for people's rights uh, start around the world, uh, no matter how tough it is, work with our allies and, uh, and uh, help them out. Thanks, Josh. And Sam? Yeah, the um, reports coming out of um, Western China with the treatment of the Uyghurs is, yeah, it's awful, really. Um, the treatment and harrowing and there needs to be an end to it as soon as possible. Um, but I, I would agree with uh, kind of some of the um, other points here in terms of uh, raising issue with sanctions in terms of often they can obviously be um, used to malefect in um affecting the population more generally rather than its leaders and uh, that will not generally force change and it will cause more harm. Um, as Josh was saying, potentially um, targeted sanctions in terms of individuals rather than a blanket one would possibly be a solution to this. Um, but yeah, it is clear that there needs to be a um, policy to force the end of it. Thanks, Sam. Um, Fraser? So just a couple of points touching on what people have said. First off, the, the point um, from Jack about the, the I, th I think it might have just been a passing phrase, and if so, I'm sorry to make a big deal of it, but, but the idea of disagreement, that we're doing this purely out of out of disagreement because it doesn't align with our, our Western agenda. Um, it is a pretty simple values judgment to say that what's happening in China is wrong on, on any level, regardless of how much into the geopolitics you really want to um, go into it. Um, the other point being the US versus Chinese situation. Now, again, let's be clear, the fact that the processing of people in the South of America and the separation of kids from families is appalling. Again, it is, it is a fair point that that hasn't been talked about enough. But if we're going to mention these kind of things, then yes, we should be consistent. And it is appalling. I don't know whether that is on a comparable level to what's happening in China. Not that that is an excuse, but that, that, that this is not the right time to bring that up. Um, personally, I remember during the um, uh, the BLM rights and the idea of the militarization of the US police force. Personally, I was all for limiting um, UK arms um, that went towards federal grants towards a, a increasingly militarized police force. Um, so uh, and I'm also against um, arms trading to Saudi Arabia, as is the current Biden administration, which has recently passed an executive order limiting arms uh, sales to Saudi Arabia. So I agree, we do need to be consistent. But um, personally, I, I feel like I've been consistent. I'd like to see the UK government being more consistent. Um, and yeah, I, I, I agree with, with the point that Jack is making. And I'd like to actually say that that is happening more to an extent than, than, than he might realise. Uh, and I invite him to, to maybe try and outline other ways in which he thinks we're being in, inconsistent and see how we deal with those. Thanks. Uh, Catherine? I think um, both Jack and Joshua have raised some, raised some really good points about the need to just check our own human rights record before um, 
you know, we go acting overseas and that's not, and, you know, we absolutely should take a stance against what's happening in China. Um, but also use that as an opportunity to, if we are going to criticise that, then we need to criticise ourselves. Um, a lot of eyes will be looking towards the Biden administration for how it will deal with it. Um, because, you know, as we, as we saw with Trump, uh, he was quite happy to kind of let, it was very much uh, you do you, to put it simply. Um, and when it comes to human rights, I don't think that's good enough. Um, frankly, you know, this is a, it's a sticky situation and there will be a, a, long, a lot of um, debate going on at the international level. Um, in the meantime, people are continuing to uh, have their lives put at risk and being forced into concentration camps. So a lot of the, I think, the focus should be on humanitarian aid. And if we can't make a decision as quickly as we'd like at the, the very top levels, how can we um, get the support that is needed to to do the groundwork? Um, I also just wanted to follow up on what Fraser said about it maybe not being the time to, to look at that. Um, I might have misunderstood, but were you kind of suggesting that it wasn't the time to look at other human rights issues or uh, uh are you trying to make another point no it, it, it wasn't in a, it wasn't a general comment it was more meant within this topic i think it's wrong to shift focus i absolutely believe that it is always the time to address that and i think that um beyond this debate it is absolutely still something we need to do immediately i mean it should have been it should have been should have never happened but yeah i'm not trying to say that it's not a big it's not what aboutism i'm not saying that uh, to clarify that we shouldn't be focusing on it generally just not in this debate specifically. Thanks, Jack, would you like to go? Um, yeah, um, just in response to what Fraser was saying there, yeah, 100%, um, I I think that we yeah, we should obviously, um, you know, ad ad address and, and, call, and call out whatever human rights abuses there are in China for what they are. Um, but uh, in, in terms of you know, human rights abuses that the West is supporting in in other countries. Um, obviously, calling them out to obviously support, you know, strengthens our moral position, and and would therefore strengthen the West's position whenever it comes to trying to um, seek an end to human rights abuses in China. Um, and and just to sort of reiterate the point I made earlier, um, I've, I'm I'm not saying that we shouldn't do anything, um, and I don't think I ever said that, but. I just sort of raised uh, a question about the effect of uh, blanket sanctions, um, because obviously that's been used repeatedly by the West in several circumstances um, um, and not succeeded in, in, in most cases at, at sort of stopping human rights abuses in oppressive regimes. Thanks, Jack. Fraser, is that a legacy hand? Uh, no, I was going to ask if, if there's anything specifically, any any country specifically that you think that the US, uh, the US and the UK and the West is is out of sync with in terms of supporting human rights abuses. In uh, terms of, yeah, I mean, uh, are there are any the any any particular examples of of where the West supports human rights abuses? Well, yeah, I mean, ad addressing it, yeah. Well, I I. I, I mentioned I mentioned Saudi Arabia, where we're literally giving giving them weapons to kill Yemenis. Yeah, um, I, I, I meant stuff we hadn't 
we hadn't talked about because I mean I, I'm completely on your side with that one. Uh, I I don't think we should be investing. Well, in I, I, I mean there, there are a whole host of human rights abuses with within Western um, countries that are linked to uh, like uh, you, you're well aware of, of of the cases in America, Guantanamo Bay, and uh, well America's prison industrial complex and um, police state um, is is pretty oppressive um, and one of the uh, you know primary examples of of a authoritarian human rights. Uh, abusing regime um, in the world, and um, there uh, a whole list of countries in Latin America where uh, the West, especially America, has intervened to support um, right wing and, and, and far right governments and, and their um, oppressive regimes. I, I I just want to see um, a, a West that um, takes a consistent line against human rights abuses um, and doesn't uh, say that in certain circumstances human rights abuses are allowed simply because it supports the, the West's um, political or geopolitical um, aims at that time. Thanks, any final points on this topic? Okay, I'll move on to another fantastic question we've just had on Twitter um, from Fabia. Are the government effectively dealing with the disproportionate impact COVID is having on BAME people? Let's go back to Sam starting, if that's all right. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I'd say that there um, yeah, continues to be irresponsibility um, over uh, which different racial groups are being um, impacted the most by uh, COVID. And, you know, as I was saying before, in terms of how, um, you know, there are crises here which haven't uh, been started by COVID, so they've been exacerbated by them. And you can see that, you know, racism across um the UK is uh, absolutely still massively prolific in the current day. And, you know, there's kind of a, a tendency, I guess, to see because of um, George Floyd's murder happening in America, the unrest happening there and their um, legacy being far more, I guess, openly brutal um, with the slave trade that um, they are, you know, the only sinners on this um, on this issue. But no, it's certainly not. the. There is a huge amount of racism in the UK and it does um span as we're seeing now um every institution really and uh I, yeah i don't ultimately think that the government um is doing enough on uh, any level to um combat it because there are some uh obviously as so many of these things are systemic problems it they'll take a long time to undo but there are a lot of things um which could be you know immediately relieved or to help to be relieved which aren't happening you know we're still seeing um arrest rates for uh covered guidelines um breaching um with people who are not white um being over twice as likely to be um cautioned or arrested in guidelines in with that so i think uh yeah it continues to fail on this and um there needs to really be a, a kind of uh reckoning with um how deep these issues are rather than kind of uh trying to patch certain things up with um kind of public public relations and yeah uh gradual um often ineffective changes and josh yeah so i think what we see i think from when i'm looking at the impact of, of coronavirus on, on um, minority ethnic communities the largest thing we see is, is the issue with many things is the kind of historical scar of racism on our socioeconomic fabric of our country we see um you know people if you're from an ethnic minority, you're more likely to live in a deprived area and you're more likely to have all these side effects that come with that. So, and I think the solution to that is, is predominantly an economic one. Of course, we have to continue making sure that racism is, is stamped out and we have to make sure that our institutions are 
are free of racism, that are laws uh, protect people from racism. But I think the majority of the impact we're seeing from, from coronavirus, predominantly in, in um, health outcomes and economic outcomes, which are both down to this kind of socioeconomic situation. And that's why I think that this um, um, a plan to level up the country by the current government is an opportunity to sort that out. We see the uh, UK Shared Prosperity Fund, um, which is aiming to target funding into deprived communities and poorer areas and help fix those issues. We see the, um, the um, money going into the NHS. We're seeing new hostels being built. So I think it's 40 new hostels and 20 new refurbs of like, I think the next 10 or 15 years. And a lot of those being targeted areas that have worse health outcomes at the moment, which are normally those in poorer areas. I think that's the way to sort out these, these, uh, these issues, attack those economic issues. And when you do that, you don't have to get into the issue of positive discrimination, because when you attack when you attack all poverty, all deprivation, you are, without specifically targeting it based on ethnicity, you are still having an outsized impact on um, uh, BAME people who are in the position of being more likely to be in those situations. You're correcting that flaw, the historical scar of racism um, on, our, on our country. And that's the way to do it. So um, economic, uh, economic solutions, and that means healthcare, the uh, leveling up of the entire country, you know, investing in those deprived areas and education to make sure people have the same life choice, choice uh, chances as those who are more fortunate. So that's uh, that's why I think the government is doing the right thing and can go further to uh, sort this out. And Jack? Well, um, no, the government isn't doing enough to um, mitigate against the impact um, of, of, of the pandemic um, uh, on BAME communities. I think the um, Black Lives um, Matter uh, uh, protests um, and movement over the the summer has has really brought into sharp focus just how really present institutional and structural racism is um, in this country. Um, and obviously, um, that is is part of the reason why the the pandemic has disproportionately affected uh, um, BAME communities. Um, and I, I don't trust this government to uh, uh, address this structural racism um, because the government, um, even before the pandemic, was, you know, promoting quite directly um, racist policies. Whenever it comes to the hostile environment, the Windrush scandal, um, I don't even need to mention all of the directly racist remarks that um, our prime minister has made and refused to apologise for. Um, Whenever you've got um, a, a racist political party in charge, um, naturally there's going to be uh, a disproportionate impact um, on minority communities. Um, and uh, that's something that's um, obviously um, incredibly regrettable. Um, I think in Britain, certainly, um, addressing this structural racism um, starts with um, accepting um, Britain's historic role um, in uh, being an imperial colonial nation, um, its role in, in slavery and its role um, in the genocide of um, indigenous people um, across the world and in all of the different places where um, Britain colonised. Um, and we still to this day see um, mainstream politicians um, wanting to downplay that, wanting to present empire um, and that period of Britain's history as a positive thing with a positive legacy. Um, and that's just entirely untrue. Um, so I, I think that there's um, just a, a whole range of things that the government could be doing and should be doing and um, that it's failing to do. Um, uh, but yeah, in short, um, no, the government isn't doing enough um, and I don't trust them um, to ever do it.
Yeah, uh, com com completely. And nothing brings it more into focus than looking at what's happening in the US. I mean, if you compare um, the protests that are happening earlier in the year with uh, BLM fighting against uh, blatant police brutality, blatant racism, uh, militarization of the police force, the fact that um, no knock entries mean that you, you know, if, if you're a minority, you have danger of being shot in your own home by a, a racist police force. Um, compare that to how the government reacted to um, a capital riot seeking to overturn democracy. I mean, it, it doesn't take a genius to look at the very clear and present, um, you know, uh, source of racism uh, in the US and indeed in the UK. I mean, if you look at stats, um, I, I can't remember if you published them, but if you look at some latest stats of polling, um, over half of, of Black Britons have said that they have experienced racism uh, in and in the streets, and uh, a large proportion of ethnic minorities said that they've been called slurs in a, in a common, uh, very, very common occurrence. Uh, and it's absolutely disgraceful that it hasn't been brought into sharper focus um, this year after everything that's happened. Um, I think the government needs to lead by example. Um, I remember them promising a probe into racism and Islamophobia that hasn't been delivered yet. Um, I know that the Equality um, Human Rights Commission, having finished their Probing to Labour, and now I think they're not, in fact, ruling one out on, on the Tories. Um, Tories, um, so far, I think their reaction has been to suspend 14 members, which doesn't seem good enough to me. I think that the party should be leading by example in combating the blatant racism we're seeing. And another thing is that we need to make sure that the recovery from COVID isn't, um, I think, what Joe Biden's called a K-shaped recovery, where the well-offs, you know, um, uh, uh, come back and, uh, like Josh said, those who are in more disadvantaged positions and those who are subject to societal, societal discrimination uh, don't recover to the same extent. Um, so, yeah. And finally, Catherine. Well, I have to agree with um, a lot of what has been said already. Um, the government has known for quite a while that there are COVID disproportionately impacts uh, BAME communities. Um, you know, black people are twice as likely as white people to die from COVID. Um, and the same can be said for Bangladeshi, Pakistani groups as well. Um, and so knowing this for as long as we have, I think the response has been inadequate. Um, or at least, you know, that maybe it should be more of, um, it should be made clear to the public what is being done um, to help those most at risk um, but I think another issue that we have to be aware of is that there is increased um, scepticism around vaccinations and uh, a more anti-vax sentiment amongst BAME communities which not only is so that means that a lot of people are reluctant to go and get treated uh, with a vaccine so it's not only just an issue of getting the vaccine to those people, but also, um, you know, kind of reinforcing and, and educating um, where necessary to to show people that it, that it is about their health um, at the end of the day. Um, just recently, the Green Party it has called for a, a commission um, of inquiry for truth and uh, operatory justice, um, with the focus of that being to kind of address inequalities of structural racism. Um, but also, I think what many people are calling for is an, is an, is an inquiry into the government's response 
um, to COVID. And as part of that, we should look at where BAME communities have, have been let down. Thanks, Catherine. Um, Josh? Yes, yeah, so a couple of points have been raised, I think, about the Conservative Party. And I don't believe the Conservative Party is a racist party. Um, I think uh, Fraser raised a point about uh, internal party politics. Um, and the point there is more than 14 people have been kicked out for racism in, in the Conservative Party. I, I don't exactly know, but it's ongoing. Um, I, of course, you know, when you see the kind of the online Tory Twitter drama, you know, it's a lot more than 14 on a regular basis. There was a pledge made by all the uh, Conservative leadership candidates to have an investigation into Islamophobia. And that was started in 2020. Amanda Milling, the chairman of the Conservative Party, started an independent investigation by outside auditors um, into all forms of discrimination within the Conservative, within the Conservative Party. We're waiting on the results of that. Um, so I believe the Conservative Party is keeping its own house in order and is doing a good job. Um, and again, I, you know, I don't want to do some really kind of um, uh, distract too much here, but look, I, I would caution us from going down to a cultural thing, talking about empire and a Winston Churchill statue and whatnot. Let's focus on policy solutions that actually improve people's lives. And that means investing in schools, education, and the, and the standard living in certain areas of this country. You know, I, I think just getting distracted about what's going on in America, while there are similarities, there are also differences. And let's you know, have a focused, fact-based, policy-based approach to improving people's lives and uh, you know, making our country a better place to live for everyone. Um, Fraser, would you like to go? Um, you're on mute. Uh, yeah, so uh, on the points that Josh made, um, it, whilst it is true that they've launched an investigation into sort of general forms of, of discrimination, um, there, there are two issues with that. Firstly, they, they promised to probe into Islamophobia and they've widened the brief so as to dilute the results. Um, secondly, it's not um, it's not so much uh, it's part of the society culture uh, or part of the party culture. They, they've announced a probe into it on, on a more case-by-case -case basis. The problem with that being is that my worry for this this investigation is that it won't actually um, solve the root causes of racism in the Tory party. It will simply deal with individual events. It's like you're putting blinkers on, um, not seeing the main issue. So the, the result of this watered down pledge that they've, they've said, the only result of this is going to be that more members are suspended rather than a complete change to the culture of the Tory party, which is what is needed to combat the ingrained racism and Islamophobia. And Jack? Yeah, just in response to Josh's point about yeah, the Conservative Party is doing enough or is that that's what I think he seemed he seemed to claim. Like um quite aside from from the, the policies um which I already mentioned that are sort of directly disproportionately affect um the BAME communities, um there's a whole range of uh conservatives who have sort of engaged in racism and faced absolutely no kind of uh, meaningful uh, sanction. There's a Conservative councillor um, up in Scotland, councillor Ryan um, Houghton, who um, denied the gen uh, denied the Holocaust um, and said the Holocaust was exaggerated. And he was suspended for six months and readmitted to the party last year. And um, there's a Conservative MP um, who there's a report from Hope Not Hate, the anti-extremism group, um, just today. Um, which detailed how he was on um, some online show um, earlier um, uh, at the end of last year, um, where he was um, sharing this platform with um, a Holocaust denier. Um, and of course, there 
there are countless other examples like that. There was an open letter signed by a load of Tory MPs um, supporting the cultural Marxism um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. I think that was last year or the year before. Um, and they faced absolutely no sanction for that. Um, so the Conservative Party is full of examples of um, senior individual politicians, um, the Prime Minister, of course, who engaged in directly racist behavior and faced absolutely no sanction. Um, um, so I, I I have to, you know, come back in you and say, I, I completely dispute your characterization of the Conservative Party as a party that's acting against um, racism. So if I can first respond to Fraser, um, I don't see how including other forms of racism uh, in our report and being open-minded to be having a thorough top to bottom sprinkling of the party is, is somehow um, a bad thing. I think that's very productive. Um, and I think wait till the report comes out. Wait and judge till it comes out. Don't judge things before they've happened. I think we'll have a good go at it and we'll, uh, and it'll be a good report. It will look into all forms of discrimination, not just uh, Islamic very good. But on the point that Jack's raised, I think uh, you can pick out people in the party. We all know that parties have dodgy members, right? They're vast organizations that often attract quite weird folk. I'm confident in the Conservative Party's record of removing them. But I think what we need to raise, if we're going to kind of go on to a bit of a whataboutism issue, we've got to remember why Jack left the Labour Party. He left because Jeremy Corbyn was suspended in his statement on the um, eco-socialist uh, Labour, uh, Labour page. That was one of the reasons why, why they left. And I remember Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was the only party other than the British National Party to have the Equality and Human Rights Commission investigate it. And I remember um, that panorama document about Labour staffers, the horrible things that they endured. The whole thing's from Labour members in constituents' Labour Party meetings. And now the party repeatedly, Jeremy Corbyn's office, directly interfered to prevent justice from being done. And then there's the people that Jeremy Corbyn's invited to the House of Commons, the things they've said, the people who he's called friends, what they've done. So I, I don't think this whataboutism, this sort of poking at issues, is, is really uh, the strongest suit for Jack to go for. I think let's have this report and let's see what it does, because at least the Conservative Party, the leadership is making an attempt to keep its house in order, which couldn't be spared for the party that Jack O'Dwyer Henry used to campaign for. Thanks, and Catherine, would you like to make the final point on this question and then we can move on? Yeah, I think, you know, I, unfortunately we have seen cases with Boris Johnson which can only be described as, as racism. And I do think that the Conservative Party does have a considerable uh, issue uh, with racism, but I think rather than getting too tongue-tied in saying whether or not the Conservative Party is racist, um, we do have to realise that improvements could be made across all parties um, as to our attitudes, not just towards uh, people of colour, but the LGBTQ community, dis disability groups and other um, groups that have been historically uh, discriminated against. Um, and so rather than wasting time kind of having an, a, an argument over how racist is this party or how racist is that party, um, the key thing is to, to just look at the policies that are being enacted and ask whether these policies are um, directly helping people that they, uh, that they intend to. Thank you. And um, let's take a quick five minute recess just now. Um, so come back at 10 past and we'll aim to finish around about half past. We might run over a little bit. So I'll see you all in five minutes. Okay, welcome back, everyone. 
Oh, you've all come back in a different order, so we're going to be answering questions in a different order again, because I won't be able to remember the first one. OK, this one should be good for you, Catherine, especially. Um, how should the government approach the future of the nation's railways and HS2 in particular? So, Catherine, would you like to start? Uh, yep, uh, that is a tricky one, um, especially with HS2. And it's uh, a topic that but I think, you know, kind of the Green Party and myself are torn on. Um, it's this tricky balance between um, economic growth and development and, you know, particularly um, how can we encourage that in the north, but also uh, not coming at, at the expense of the environment because growth, economic growth is pointless if it's uh, unsustainable um, because we need a healthy planet if we have to have a healthy economy. Um, I think... Currently, uh, based on all the research that's come out that has shown that HS2, um, you know, while it may reduce uh, travel times, while it may have some benefits in terms of reducing uh, the CO2 emissions of, of cars and, um, you know, r reducing um, CO2 emissions from people's uh, commutes, um, that is completely outweighed by the um, amount of environmental degradation and, and damage that, that it will uh, cause. Um, you know, report after report has come out to say uh, and criticise the policy and say that this is not sustainable and, and kind of what is being marketed as, um, you know, something that's good for jobs, that's good for the economy and also the environment is, is it, you know, it might be good for jobs in the economy, but it, it's certainly not for the um, environment. So I think rather, I think the best approach, um, you know, the Green Party and its 10-point plan is advocating for sustainable transport. And as part of that, we shouldn't just look at the north and look at doing one specific line, which, uh, which is HS2, but we just need to um, look at doing wider uh, national change um, and see this as unfortunately a problem that may uh, what's, may mean what some would argue is biting off more than we can chew. But we are at that stage where we can't just do it uh, on a regional by regional basis. And there needs to be, um, as part of that, I think there also needs to be greater uh, leeway given to the localities um, to have that pot of money to invest in public transport as they see fit. Uh, but yeah, in terms of what we should do about it, I think we should follow the Green Party's uh, 10 point plan, and that is to kind of introduce uh, national sustainable forms of transport, and that means investing a lot of money in our railways and not just one specific line. Thanks, Catherine. Um, Fraser? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, we, we should really be trying to catch up with other nations in terms of uh, our rail network, its connectivity and the higher frequency that something like HS2 would provide. Um, I mean, personally, I side sort of err on the side of pro HS2 just because it's in practicality the least bad option in terms of getting what we desperately need, which is um, uh, high speed rail and the frequency and the um, things that, that opens up. 
Um, in terms of the criticisms that I get, in terms of uh, it's massively overspent, the project itself hasn't been run terribly well. But then again, show me one of these projects that hasn't, you know, massively overspent beyond initial initial calculations. I think it's something that in the long term is going to be very, very necessary in terms of updating our network, which is already under significant strain. Um, and we should be starting it sooner rather than later. And Jack? Um, yeah, I think the the British uh, well the Eng English rail system is certainly yeah in need of uh, uh, a lot of investment um, both in terms of uh, the rolling stock but also train lines um, like HS2. Um, I I know HS2 is uh, is controversial um, to some people for a variety of reasons and I and I do think that yeah there should be. Um, as much a focus on on building um, sort of east-west connection within the north um, um, as there is this focus on HS2 and getting the north connected to London, um, because I think uh, you know, the, there needs to be better connection um, within the north um, as as much as anything. Um, I think whenever it comes to um, improving the the service provision, improving the sort of experience um, and and hopefully popularity of people using. Uh, uh, public transport, um, well, there's a simple uh, solution that will uh, go a long way to do that, which is nationalisation. Um, and uh, we, I think, uh, pretty urgently need to nationalise um, the, the railways in, in the UK, which is an incredibly popular policy by all polling measures, um, and will uh, be uh, probably a lot um, less costly than, than the current system um, because we, we need, do need to do um, everything we can to um, have as many people using public transport for environmental and sustainability um, reasons um, and certainly wrestling um, the train system out of the hands of private um, capital is um, a very important first step in, in, in that journey. And Sam? Uh, I am, um, I think, uh, as long with part as well as the party pro HS2. As I think, ultimately, as has been raised already, uh, we need to massively move away from cars being the main form of transport, and the only way to do that really is to massively expand the current transport system, which is, uh, you know, woefully underfunded and underprepared for um, the century coming, which we need it to be. You know, the best form of getting people from A to B. Um, so yeah, I'd say um, we do need this and that ultimately, I think it is the most environmentally um, uh, most environmentally friendly option of all of them. I think, um, as I say, as others have said, um, there has been uh, a lot of overspending and a lot of unnecessary um, extra steps. But I do believe that, um, yeah, it's, it's um, an incoherent strategy to be talking about how uh, we need to kind of make um, the country more environmentally friendly and then to go against um, a mass expansion of public transport ultimately. And uh, then also, yeah, I would like to echo Jack's point in that uh, we have ultimately one of the most uh, ineffective, uh, priciest, um, latest uh, rail networks in the continent. And um, uh, the nationalisation when it's been done experimentally here on the East Coast has uh, shown real promise for overturning these solutions sorry overturning these problems and um i think yeah as well as this it's very uh, popular so i think it, it should be uh the policy of the government and it is policy of the Labour party in order to nationalize these 
Thank you. Is there anything anyone would like to add on to this? Oh, sorry, can I just dive in there? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, yeah, so I've just got to say first, HS2 is, a, I've got to acknowledge it's a contentious issue within the Conservative society and the party itself. People go both ways, but I think I must agree with, with, with the need for it. Um, HS2, all about the time saved. I think that's a misnomer. It's about the capacity on the rails for more people and the capacity to use electric rails, which of course means you can use renewable electricity. And, you know, with the Green Party opposition to it, I find it a bit confusing. I, I feel that the Green Party is more, rather than the party of, of low carbon transport and low carbon solutions, it's the party of nimbyism and, and anti-development. And I find that's a, a strong kind of a problem I find. We need to get this done, it'll benefit the country so much. And other people have raised very good points about northern uh, transport uh, lines as well. And I agree, I think we should not do HS2, we should do HS3, linking up the northern cities. And I think they can, once the, uh, now, making up for the uh, beaching cuts, the Conservative Party is now putting 500 million into northern rail lines and community rail lines, uh, trying to eliminate pace of trains, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but I, what I must very much disagree with is, is nationalisation. Um, and this argument that Britain has one of the worst train systems in Europe, it's quite false. But one of the highest numbers of per capita uses of trains in any train line in Europe. We also, I'm going to point out, have the safest rail line per, uh, as, per, as far as deaths per uh, kilometre of passenger travel goes. And what I think we need is, in fact, more competition. I think we've got, even though it's better than privatisation, uh, nationalisation now, it led to huge amounts of investment in rail that nationalisation didn't bring. Um, it is kind of the worst of both worlds. We need more competition, we need more uh, uh, competition between companies. The, the, the kind of tender system that you get a, a right to run on that line is a failure because it, there's competition in, in getting the government uh, license, but there's no competition after that. There's no competition to consumers. So we need to, in fact, open up even more, make it even more uh, privatised, even more competitive, and allow consumers to have choice so they can uh, choose which is cheapest and best for them. But yeah, I agree. More transport links means better, life, better uh, quality of life for everyone, means better economic growth, and means uh, more cars off the road. And Catherine, would you like to respond? Yeah, I have to disagree um, with Joshua's point about the, the Green Party simply kind of being a negative and anti-development. Um, we're exactly the opposite. I think what um, the party is doing that many are failing to do is have a long-term vision um, and realise that development, you know, it's not about quick fixes. Um, as I said, there are a lot of positives to HS2, but at the end of the day, if the environmental degradation outweighs those positives, um, then that is just one example of the fact that uh, quick fixes don't work when it comes to climate change. Um, and, you know, transportation needs to be tackled uh, as part of a wider picture um, that may involve nationalisation. Um, and I think as we've, you know, while there may be some benefits, um, you know, as with privatisation and the response to COVID, you know, there are certainly times where privatisation has worked to speed processes up and get the response that we need. Um, but considering the current state of the uh, the rail system in the UK, I think it's quite clear that competition um, is not what we need right now because that does not seem to have worked. Um, you know, train prices are increasing, um, fares are becoming less affordable for people, and I do have to agree with the rest of the panel um, that privatisation um, and competition um, is not the answer and has currently failed um, the general public.
Thank you. Um, any other points on this question? OK, thank you. Um, and Miguel asks, what do you think of the disagreement within the UK government regarding the closing of borders and the implementation of mandatory hotel quarantine? Um, Catherine, would you like to start? Um, I think we just have to look at, at, at other countries, um, New Zealand or Australia. Um, I just uh, one of many that have kind of have introduced uh, a hotel quarantine. Um, and, you know, all thing, all facts are considered, they are doing better. Um, I think if we are going to have allow travel, then a caveat of that has to be that it is done safely and that people um, should uh, isolate um, if need be. Um, we need to make sure that those coming into the country aren't harming um anybody on their arrival and you know if I think we just need to again look at what the international community is doing um, and realise that it, you know desperate times call for quite extreme measures and, and um, if quarantining in a hotel um, you know is, is what it takes to guarantee the health of the population then um, I think it is something that the government should support and I can't understand um, the lack of action around it. Joshua? Yes, so I think they're, they're very, very good points been raised. Now, I, I, kind of, uh, I find the government's uh, attempt to commitment in the early days of the pandemic to maintain our open borders, maintain our flow of people is admirable, maintain businesses going, keep families able to re re reconnect. But I think this is something that I think the government has failed. Uh, and I think that the I think the biggest failure of all this government is a failure to maximise testing in the early days of the pandemic. I think that is what we should be using to help reduce, help make travel safer. We can, if we're going to get to a point where our testing capacity allows us to have uh, capacity available to test people travelling, means you can maintain uh, travel in a safe way. But yes, quarantine hotels and there are an, an inevitability, especially with this new strain. So I'm, uh, I'm glad the government's taking action. Fraser. Uh, yeah, so I profess I, I don't think I necessarily know enough about the specific case of um, open borders and quarantine to make a, a decision on this. But I, I would say um, to do what uh, Josh said earlier is to, to listen to the science. I mean, um, uh, my, my instinct is that if it's something that can reduce the vectors, then as much as it, as it might be um, a discomfort, that might be something we have to pursue. But on the, on the other hand, I can see that it's something that is going to cause severe distress. I'm going to have to apologise for being a fence sitter on this one in classic Lidden fashion, but um, I, I I don't necessarily know enough about this specific part myself. Um, I'd probably echo what has been said about that ideally everything should be kept open and free, um, but if, if the science says that it is a risk and if it is a vector for transmission, then I, I would say, you know, try and limit it. Jack? Yeah, like like many things about the government's response, I think it's just been um, slow and like this really is sort of a conversation that we should have been having 12 months ago. Um, and there was certainly a period whenever loads of other countries were um, not necessarily having mandatory quarantines, but at least sort of testing or temperature checks at airports. And Britain was just sort of uh, failing to do anything. Um, and that was certainly a, a missed opportunity 
to control the pandemic um, and I certainly think if sort of you know the medical expertise suggests it um, especially with some of these new strains um, in different parts of the world um, it may make sense um, to fund uh, sort of qu quarantining um, for people um, arriving in the UK but I think we should also make sure that this isn't used as an opportunity for the government to blame shift or scapegoat or sort of um, blame uh, any increase on transmission on um, foreigners or immigrants, as, as the government um, usually likes to sort of um, blame the country's problems on 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 people who aren't from here. Um, and we've got to remember that, you know, the failings of this government are the responsibility of this government. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's ultimately um, their responsibility and um, it's their failures that explain why the UK is in such a bad position um, today in terms of the, the death rate. And Sam? Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat as Fraser in terms of not knowing the um, complete intricacies of this. Overall, though, yeah, I do believe in, you know, continuing to follow the science on it. And yeah, it's necessary, um, unfortunately, that there will be restrictions in freedom of movement um, in this time. But um, yeah, I would emphasise that um, this should ultimately be the furthest in terms of um, kind of uh, mandatory testing upon arrival and um, if it's a negative test and you're allowed in I think that's a good policy but I think um, completely closing off the borders would be a uh, very negative one which I don't think um, there is backing for um, so yeah that would ultimately be my response stay in line with the science but um, as kind of Jack touched upon we need to make sure that we avoid this uh, continuation of an environment where immigrants are you know often put to blame for um, issues that really were not their fault. And Fraser? Uh, just just quickly going on, I uh, sort of agree with a lot of stuff that, that Jack said and, and also stuff that Josh has said about well, the government's actual response in practice has been um, too little, if anything, too late. I mean, um, I saw something a couple of weeks ago in which Priti Patel was saying they should have locked down or we should have locked down earlier in March and then Matt Hancock saying, well, if only we got the track and trace system worked out, but it was their responsibilities. Um, this is stuff that they they are clearly realizing now that they have royally messed up. Um, but I don't see them taking the responsibility. I think they ought to for the delays they had in in those areas. I think we might we might be seeing with this as well. Thank you. And then time for our final question: um, Should the university adopt a no detriment policy for students in light of the coronavirus crisis? Um, so, Catherine, would you like to start again? Uh, could you, would you mind just uh, expanding on what that would actually involve? Yeah, of course. Um, so there's been a recent petition going around um, among students asking the university to implement a no detriment policy to make sure that students aren't negatively impacted by, um, by the crisis. Obviously, I'm not quite sure what the details of that would be, but... Um, it would basically ensure students don't get um, bad grades as, as a result of having to self-isolate or having to um, be at home with their parents and not being able to study and in other situations like that, just to try and um, help students out academically. Well, I think I'm right in saying that the, the university has already agreed to give uh, blanket extensions. Correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think that was agreed at least for weeks, the first few weeks of term that extensions will be given um, and I think that we have to ex 
accept that, um, you know, in in the circumstances that students are faced with, um, that there should be a no detriment policy. You know, if that is simply that um, we go off a grade earlier in the year or, um, you know, allow people kind of a baseline grade for their coursework um, and agree that that um, exam results won't affect that baseline grade, um, we at least need to give students that degree of reassurance because there are so many obstacles that they're being faced with, you know, learning from home, um, physically in terms of things like Wi-Fi, um, just having a space to work, um, but also mental health-wise. Um, so I'm not 100% on clear on maybe what the policy should be specifically, but I certainly think along the lines of having a, a baseline grade uh, for students based on coursework or academic performance throughout the year, um, and then that at least gives some reassurance. And Joshua? Yeah, so I don't think I can speak on behalf of the uh, of the uh, society, the Conservative Society about this, we haven't discussed it, but yeah, um, that's, I believe last last uh, last summer exams were on the few, few uh, universities in the country not to have a no detriment policy, so I think it's probably a good idea, as long as we can maintain the integrity of our qualifications, which is important for those who are, you know, looking for jobs, uh, people in accounting and whatnot who need, who need uh, professional accreditation for their degrees, but yeah. I'm behind it. Fraser? Yeah, uh, completely echoing what's been said before. I fully support no judgment policy, um, as does the Society at Lancaster, uh, and indeed the uh, the social safety net policy, which is another another petition that's been going around. Um, I think these are absolutely essential um, to 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 ensure that um, the, the uni isn't, isn't letting down its students. Um, because if you look at what they've been saying and the kind of things they've been putting out, uh, ridiculous, including things like the 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 pitiful 400 pound rebate but that's a, that's a separate issue um it's unacceptable given the level of things we're suffering if you look up the uni terms conditions and the student charter if you look at um what the uni has promised to do if there is a situation where um facilities aren't being f delivered fully um according to a lot of what they've been saying themselves in their term t's and c's and the student charter they should be offering um, much more exemptions and uh, understanding for exacerbating circumstances than they are currently doing. So we absolutely need a blanket extension for coursework. Uh, we absolutely need a no detriment to prevent um, the poor, the, well, the limited services being provided to us, meaning that um, through no fault of our own, we have worse grades. Uh, and we absolutely need to ensure that uh, mental health capacity at the uni um, is operating a much bigger capacity to help with people who are, are using uni services, but are in a lockdown and are suffering suffering from the consequences of that. So yeah, fully, fully support everything that's been said. And Jack? Yeah, I support uh, no detriment policy. The uni, the uni has really been quite clearly failing students um, throughout the pandemic um, in terms of um, this issue, in terms of um, rent, which is obviously a live issue at the moment. Um, and uh, in terms of lack of uh, mental health support, which is obviously something that's been going on since um, even even before the pandemic and a lack of funding of, of, of general student support and especially mental health support. Um, I think that uh, the the rent strike is 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 showing uh, 
you know, hopeful signs of those negotiations have started with the university and it, and it looks likely that there, there are going to be uh, concessions made um, for students there. Um, um, but it is sad that that had to happen. Um, and I, I think it's sort of demonstrative of just sort of how stubborn the university is and how much they don't really care what students think, that it, it does take sort of, um, you know, mass civil disobedience. And that's what the rent strike is to get the uni to even um, come to the negotiating table um, when it comes to the no detriment policy and, and, and other issues. Um, there have been petitions that have sort of shown um, the, what student opinion is quite clearly, yet the university are just sort of willing to ignore that and they know that they're able to. Um, if I can just sort of make one wider um, ideological point, but I think it is relevant, is that this is sort of um, partly the fault of the marketization of education, that the governance of the university has become a lot less democratic over the past several years. Um, just 10 years ago, there were committees and positions elected within university management that would have been in a situation like this brilliant for students to be able to hold management to account and um, to get their voices across. Um, but Lancaster, like so many other universities um, has uh, had massive constitutional reform that's just sort of gutted all um, forms of accountability and democracy from within the way the university is run and that's partly to the reason for why we're in this situation today. Uh, yeah me and the Labour Club uh, both definitely hugely support the instituting a policy of no detriment as uh, I think it is just um, it's kind of just a basic act of kindness really to students who have suffered so much and you know the whole population but um, during this pandemic and yeah as has um, just been touched upon I do think it does unfortunately speak to a, um, a wider problem within universities about a kind of uh, lack of students having a say over their how their own university is run and um, yeah unfortunately rather than kind of relying on the good faith and kindness of, of management there does need to be the organization of students to um you know use direct action to get those demands and so yeah i'd say definitely i think there's a petition up um calling for the no detriment policy which i encourage everyone to sign as well i think that's a a good way as a first step of direct action you know to really um show how popular the policy is and how it should be implemented Definitely. So thank you, everybody, for coming. And thank you, especially to our panellists. It's This has been a brilliant discussion. Um, I always love these events and I love all the different perspectives we managed to get throughout them. Um, we will hope to have another one pretty soonish, I think. Um, so, yeah, thank you to everybody. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that needs to be said. If you've particularly agreed with any of these candidates or you've fallen in love with any of them, um, their details are on their social media pages on Facebook and Instagram. I think everyone has both of them. So go check them out. <laughs> and Sonia, is this something you wanted to say? No, I would like to just say thank you to everyone who put the questions on Twitter. I'm sorry that we couldn't answer all of them. Obviously, we will try and keep those in mind for the next time we do the Q&A. Uh, so thank you very much. And if any party um, Twitter accounts want to answer the questions, I'm sure that wouldn't go amiss. Yeah, so thank you everyone again for coming. Um, this recording of this meeting should be posted on Bailrig within the next week. So keep an eye out for it. Thank you. Thank you to you guys for organising it. It's been great. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Pleasure, guys. Cheers, thank everyone. You.